You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. This is Dr. Lisa Belisle, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 223, best of 2015 hearing for the first time on Sunday, December 27, 2015. We love what we do on Love, Maine Radio. Now in our fifth year, it has been our great privilege to spend time with hundreds of intriguing Mainers who also love the lives that they have created. This week, we revisit insightful conversations with artist Scott Nash, musical legend Dan Crew, brothers Paul and Lou Uranek, and chocolate maker Kate McAleer, founder of Bixby & Co., Thank you for joining us. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Apothecary by Design. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines prepared by experienced professionals with a focus on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way that it's meant to be. And by the Rooms family of restaurants, who are hosting their third annual New Year's Eve charity gala at Boone's Fish House. The evening starts with a prefix menu in front of a fireplace with live jazz, then kicks into high gear upstairs from 9 p.m. till 1 a.m. with music by the Jason Spooner Band. Special giveaways all evening and your enjoyment will help raise money to feed hungry children in Maine through full plates, full potential. Last year, the rooms raised $10,000, and this year, they want you to help them beat that number. Call 207-774-5725 for reservations. Have fun this New Year's Eve by giving back. It's interesting to me that I can know somebody's name and then years and years later end up meeting this person and this individual that I'm talking to Scott Nash is is that person Scott Nash is an illustrator graphic designer and chair of the illustration department at the Maine College of Art he's also the owner of Nash Box Studios and he's someone that I've known about um I don't know. It's probably got to be 15 years or so. It's the way it goes. And it's the way it goes that here you are today and I get to talk to you. And I feel really fortunate that you've been able to come in today. It's nice to be here. Scott, you are doing something that I think a lot of people have the opportunity to enjoy, which mm-hmm. is illustration and also the the book that you've written, The High Skies Adventures of Blue Jay the Pirate. Um, I'm really into short titles. Yes, I yeah, can good. see that. Yeah. Um, and yet... It's something that I don't think people know that much about. They don't necessarily know why one becomes an illustrator. They don't know um, how one becomes an illustrator and how one could be an illustrator who works on um, national shows and with national organizations and live on Peaks Island the way that you do. So I'm kind of fascinated about your how you got to be where you are. Well, let's change that. We'll, we'll let people know how, exactly how to become an illustrator in in, uh, in Portland. I moved here about, let me give you a little history. I moved here about, gee whiz, 20 years ago. Um, I had run a design studio down in Boston, and it got a little bit overwhelming for me. It was suddenly found myself managing a staff of 80 people 
And uh, I really, I really define myself by, as a creative person. And what's important to me is to make things. And so basically, uh, long story short, is started trolling around looking for places and uh, had good friends that were here in Maine and found it to be not only a vital um, creative community, but a very welcoming creative community. It's not in the least bit stodgy. I mean, we got to know people that have become, you know, in the first few couple of years of be being here, they're still fast friends for us. And uh, we felt very connected to this place. And it seemed like a place where I could have sort of the best of both worlds. Um, I could have the sort of quiet time that's, that's needed to write and create and and also find a place where I could really engage and connect with a wealth of creative talent in Portland, up the coast, throughout the entire state. As a matter of fact, I sort of refer to Maine as being sort of a, a state of hidden treasures. I'm, they're constantly revealing themselves to us. And while I find that really intriguing, I also want to find a way to have them be a little bit less hidden. And that's why I'm very appreciative of being here today to talk about illustration. Well, the funny thing is, in the intro, I almost said you can't turn over a rock without finding an artist. But I thought people might think that was really negative. But I think that what you're saying is kind you, of the you, same thing. You do have to turn over rocks to find creative people here. Because sometimes we're hiding. You know, we've come, we've come from another place. And we're thinking that we, we want that seclusion. And actually, one of the questions on, on the survey here uh, on the, that was asked was, what would I do if I, was, if I was, could do it all over again, if I could you know, ten, go 10 years back? And it would be engage more quickly, you know, really connect with people right from the get-go. I sort of sequestered myself for a while. Um, but that now I've really, I've sort of flourished, and you'll, as, we, as we talk, you'll see that I've really um, dedicated to engaging with the community, both here in Portland and throughout the state of Maine. Well, that is an interesting, um, that is an interesting thing that I think we've talked with other artists about. There, there is this, the need to sequester and the need to have solitude and the need to create, but then also the very real need to connect. And in your case, the need to, um, to interact and to teach and to mentor and to <laughs> be a fabric in the creative community. And I'm sorry. And one of, one of the things that I do is I, 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 in my teaching is I teach my students discipline. And the discipline is actually a good thing. And the only, the way to, to I am finding this is more and more true of creative people, is that we have to find a way to sort of compartmentalize our lives. So I have, you know, depending on how you count it, three jobs that I do, three passions. In the morning, I get up on a good day, make a cup of coffee, uh, you know, shuffle across the, my, our deck, which we call our commute, my wife and I call our commute, to my studio. Um, where I write for most of the morning. Uh, then in the afternoon, come into the studio uh, at Nash Box, or I head into Maine College of Art to work with the students. And then I trundle back to Peaks Island, take a boat back to Peaks, and um, spend ridiculous amount of hours at night uh, illustrating. And it seems to be a terrific time to create what I call ridiculous ideas. Uh, and I also embrace the idea of you know creating ridiculous ideas. It's the well, it's it's the it's the main impetus and main catalyst for a lot of stuff, especially in kids media. Um, but I think it's important for creative people um, and just people in general. Our lives are pretty frenetic to find ways to give yourself time throughout the day 
to do specific tasks. And uh, it's worked for me, and I think it works pretty well for my students as well. I was reading The High Skies Adventures of Blue Jay the Pirate last night. <laughs> Thank you. And I know you're working on the next book. I am. Which I don't, when will that come out? It's called The Earthly Exploits. And uh, that is the question, especially on Peaks Island, where the kids come up to me and ask me if I'm on the boat, why I'm not back home writing the sequel to this. <laughs> but the, in fact, the, the, in fact, it's a, it's a longer process. I stepped into something that was far more epic than I had anticipated. And I have to say, I'm, I'm f- fairly surprised that um, I've actually written a fantasy, something that could be categorized as a fantasy adventure. Um, and now I'm on well on way, way pretty much through the second version of uh, the second uh, edition of uh, Blue Jay the Pirate, and I have a third, third one in mind as well. So there's going to be, I think, three in this series. So we don't know when the next one will come out, but you're working on it. I am. Right. I was just evading the question. Okay. Yeah. Right. No, no. It's coming out. It has It has to be finished. Um, I have to really finish this up in the next couple of months. So I'm, 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 I'm well on the way. So. Well, the thing that I like about this book, um, it, is, it is very rich in illustration. And that, to me, is wonderful because it reminds me of the books that I read when I was younger, where there was a whole world that was created and created using illustration. I think one of your earlier illustrations is of the boat that they are on, and they're lifting the, um, I believe it's the egg, yeah. Um, yeah. and you you label the various parts of the boat. Right. And this was one of the things that I so enjoyed when I was growing up was that there would be this world and an illustrator, an author-illustrator, would take the time to actually configure the entire world and label it, and 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 it just it makes it so rich and layered. Well, you're speaking to what I see as one of the primary sort of uh, virtues of an illustrated book. Um, I, I just recently read a book, um, uh, "What We See When We Read," by P- Peter Mendelssohn, who was suggesting that actually novels should not be illustrated. <clears throat> that we should that when with a writer, what we should be doing is in, engaging in a collaborative process, where we are imagining what you know basically uh, the general ideas that are laid out by the author. Um, that's fine if you have a frame of, frame of reference, if you're an adult, if you have some sort of uh, life experience. But for kids, um, it's really useful to have an illustrated world, especially if it's a fantasy realm. I mean, um, I, I'm sure that as an adult you could imagine what pirate birds would look like but I'm guessing most people can't. And so having, I think having illustrated books helps to provide a context, especially to kids, for what this world is about. I used to love going through, you know, I mentioned uh, uh, Treasure Island earlier. I used to love those books. Those are the books that I grew up with. And one of the things I especially appreciated about them is that the reading, the illustrations were sort of a reward to uh, I want not not that the illust- the uh, right, the reading wasn't pleasurable, but it's a reward to the reading, or it enhanced the reading in in very specific ways. Um, and that, this is a form that um, th- these are discussions that we have all the time at Maine College of Art. It's one of the things that I really enjoy about working in this program. We're all really passionate about narrative, about thinking about narrative, thinking about plot, thinking about character design, not only, though, in the writing realm, but in illustration as well, in drawing. And as a matter of fact, I um, teach a sort of a 
uh, an iterative or progressive sort of um, process where the students will use drawing as an inspiration for writing and writing as an inspiration for drawing. It really makes the whole world a little bit more real and tangible, especially when you're working, again, within a fantasy realm or with, or with you know, subjects like, you know, I've worked on books like Flat Stanley about a little boy who's flattened to an eighth of an inch thick. And I would contend that that has to be illustrated because the thought, the realistic thought of a kid being flattened to an eighth of an inch thick is not a pleasant one. And so I actually, we actually do want to control that and make sure that, you know, he looks like a gingerbread boy as opposed to something else. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Mary Libby of Remax by the Bay, whose 15 years of experience and unique perspective on the industry puts creativity and enjoyment into house hunting. Specializing in properties in southern Maine, Mary will work with you to get to know your wants, desires, and dreams, and make sure that the home you move into is as close to perfect as it gets. And she'll make sure you have fun along the way. Because while moving is one of the more stressful events you'll encounter, finding the right home doesn't have to be. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in Southern Maine, be in touch with Mary and find out more about why when it comes to buying and selling real estate, a good time really can be had by all. Mary Libby of Remax by the Bay, your connection to living right. Go to marylibby.com for more information. For the past three years, Maine Magazine has put together a list of 50 Mainers who are really visionaries for our state. And Dan Crew is one of these 50 Mainers. Of course, he probably belonged on the first list, but. I'm fortunate because he's on this year's list, and I get to speak with him this year. And this happens to be our 200th show, which is a very big deal for us. Um, so thanks so much for coming in, Dan. Oh, I'm, I'm very happy to. And let me give a little background about you for those who, I'm sure almost everybody who's listening has heard of Dan Crew or read the magazine. But I'll give your background because it's important. You've done a lot. Um, this is Dan Crew. He's a supporter of the arts in Maine. He is currently the president of the Bob Crew Foundation, named for his late brother. The foundation is intended to help aspiring musicians and artists find fulfilling careers and to support the LGBT community. The Bob Crew Foundation recently gave $3 million to the Maine College of Art to create the Bob Crew Program for Music and Art. Dan Crew is currently overseeing the creation and construction of the program. And this is just what you've been doing recently. <laughs> Fill in my spare time. Just yes. in your spare time. Right. And your house was actually featured in Maine Home and Design not so long ago. That's you, correct. You put a lot of effort into that house. Right. But tell me about why Maine? Why did you decide uh, to come here? Why was it important? Well, back in 1990, I had uh, completed the sale of a publishing, a music publishing company with my brother. And that gave me tremendous flexibility to pretty much do what I wanted to do. And so the following summer, we wound up summering up on North Haven. And by the second month or month and a half after I was up there, I came back from my bike ride and I announced to my wife, I said, uh, I'm not going back. Now, I have to understand, I had, it was sort of an internal uh, epiphany, but I had not thought what, did that, what does that actually mean? So it wasn't that we were going to live on North Haven or what have you, but I wasn't going back to what we had. And that precipitated a lot of action. So by September, we moved into a house up on the Western Prom. And my kids never left, the, went from the island right to school in Portland. And um, the rest evolved from that. 
and part and parcel of that is I also had to let Bob Ludwig, who was a very close friend of mine and someone whom I had been advising for many years, let him know that we were not going to be building a studio in New York City, which had been what we had been talking about for some time. And he was, his reaction was, I thought he was having a heart attack, but his reaction was, oh my God, do you think we could do it in Maine? Because he had this, he and Gail, his wife, had this personal uh, hope that one day they could move to Maine because his father and mother already lived here. They had retired up here. So in the process, it long, took, it, took, it, it took me about six months to do a business plan. And uh, I came up with the, with the idea that it, it would work. You know, but that it, it, may, it may not be a, uh, as big as it would be in New York City, but I really knew it could succeed. And as it turned out, after we did it, it turned out to be bigger than even New York. It was huge and is, to this day, a huge success. And you're talking about the Gateway Studios. Yes, that's right. Yeah. We did have the opportunity to interview Bob, and actually his wife Gail was in the studio with us, and, and it seems like they were able to, you were all collectively able to bring some pretty big names to Maine. And they still do. I mean, the, it is probably one of the best mastering studios in the world. And at the time, early on, because in 91, when we opened actually in 90, officially opened in 93, but we actually opened November of 92 with our first couple of artists, but by... Um, by the, by the second or third year of our operation, we exceeded our 10-year goal. So it was raving success. Where are you originally from? I lived in New York, but had moved to, to Connecticut. I was, at that moment, living in western Connecticut with my wife and my two young girls. And uh, Bob was in New York City. So it was quite a, a, a transition for both for both of us, really. Why music? What was it about music that kind of got you into the music publishing business and has kept you interested all this time? Well, I always tell this little, uh, quote, joke. Uh, people ask me all the time how to get into the music business, and I say, well, my experience is this. You go to the Naval Academy. You graduated from the Naval Academy. You go serve in, go become an officer in the service, and you get out and go to work for... Uh, Bell Laboratories, and then your brother comes and asks to have lunch with you one day and says, <laughs> would you think about coming into the music business with me? Because things were, what had happened is the four seasons started to break wide open. My brother didn't know what to do, and he came to me to help, and I joined him, and that's all, now, rest is all history. I've been in the music business since 1961. And you were able to work for quite a long time, in fact, up until his death, with your brother in a very close capacity. My brother had a, a, a series of physical problems that developed, but in the last three years, four years, it became very serious, and I had to uh, bring him to Maine and put him into a nursing home. But up until then, we had been in business, and I had always been in the role of, you know, fireman might be the word. So... <laughs> Yeah, but we had built, in the 60s, he and I had built a hugely successful production and publishing company. Uh, we had a series of number, I mean, a lot of number one records, top 10 records, and uh, part of which is the history 
that has been shown on Broadway with the show Jersey Boys, which is basically the story of one of our groups called The Four Seasons. The interesting part of that is when we were doing all of those records, when we were doing The Four Seasons and Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels and Leslie Gore and all of those artists that were ours that we produced and released records by, we had this uh, attitude that it, that's, this is just music for this week, and we have, we, and are we on the charts this week? And we're, what role are we on the charts? How many sales have we had? No one would have thought that records and music that we were creating in 1961 through 1966 or 67 would find itself on Broadway in the 2000s and be a quite honestly, one of the biggest hits, financial hits, uh, in the history of Broadway. It's still running on Broadway. It's in its ninth year on, in, on Broadway. It's in London. It's in Las Vegas. It's got a road company. It's been, it's had companies in Australia and Canada and South Africa. And so, it, quite honestly, it's beyond, you can't conceive of that. You can't look forward and say, oh, this is what's going to happen with our lives. It altered a lot of the things that we could do. And as a result of Jersey Boys, the side, one of the great benefits is the Bob Crew Foundation. Because what do you do with all this success? You, so we, but we're basically, Bob and I decided is to pay it forward. And so hence, we formed the foundation. And of course, at the time, my brother was still reasonably well. But then he had this very tragic fall when we were going to, um, the next day we were supposed to go and celebrate the fifth year of Jersey Boys in New York, and he fell down a flight of stairs and pretty much permanently damaged his uh, brain. And so that set this whole cycle for the next three years or so for him, downward spiral. It was a very tragic um, episode for, for all of us, but uh, sad because he can't enjoy what we're now able to do. It's tough. It's you, you've had a lot of tough things, actually. Yeah. Your daughter, Jessie, died 19 years ago. Yeah. And we had her mother, who is now Sydney, right. on the show. Um, and he was telling us about how this impacted his music because he went through a gender reassignment surgery. Oh, yeah. Um, you've, you've had a lot of things. Jesse's death was the most significant event in both of our lives. And certainly it still profoundly affects everything I do and think about. There, there isn't a day that I don't think about Jesse. And that so much of my motivation is about the concept, that this is a concept that I have and that she hasn't been able to live her life out and I'm living out her life for her, doing the kind of things that I really am convinced she would have done. She had this belief and she had righteous indignation. She was going to correct so many things and and she did. And she had a major impact on her classmates who talk about her and still talk about her. So um, yes, Jessie was phenomenal. She was a phenomenon. But I am I do mean this when I say that at one point when I really didn't know I would be able to go on because of the grief, 
it was that realization that I had to make a difference, that I had, in her name, do something to make a difference. And uh, that's what I've been doing. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough, and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland, easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaME.com for more information. It isn't often that I have the opportunity to interview um, a set of brothers, a set of sisters, a set of siblings of any sort in the, on the radio show, and today I have that privilege. Um, today I have with me Lou and Paul Urenic. Lou is a former Neiman Fellow and editor-in-residence at Harvard University. He is a professor of journalism at Boston University now. He was deputy managing editor at the Philadelphia Inquirer and editor of the Portland Press Herald. His writing has appeared in numerous publications, including the New York Times, the International Herald Tribune, Boston Globe, and Field and Stream. A former Fulbright fellow, Uranic is the author of Backcast, which won the National Outdoor Book Award for Literary Merit, and Cabin, Two Brothers, A Dream, and Five Acres in Maine. His latest book is The Great Fire, One American's Mission to Rescue Victims of the 20th Century's First Genocide. Lou's brother Paul moved to Maine in the 1970s when he was asked to help build a post and beam home on land that Lou bought in New Gloucester. The home took three years worth of Sunday work to build. After that, Paul got involved in construction and eventually moved into a construction management position at the Bolus Company, where he has been part of many notable projects, such as Pineland Redevelopment, the Winslow Homer Home Restoration for the Portland Museum of Art, Allagash Brewery's Evolving Development and Expansion, Backyard Farms Research and Development Center in Madison, and the current Thompson's Point Redevelopment. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having it's us. Great to be here. Thank you. And these were just uh, these were smaller versions of much more work that you both have done. I could have actually spent the entire show just talking about the stuff that you each have done for the Portland area and the world at large. I guess let's just say. So we're very privileged to have you here today. Thank you. I'm. I really enjoyed reading the book Cabin, and in no small part, it was because um, of the brother aspect of all of this. Now, Lou, you were going through some significant transitions in your life when you decided to build this cabin. And it's it was an interesting and um, sometimes a difficult book to read from that standpoint. Talk to me a little bit about what was happening I, yeah. in your life. I, I undertook the, the cabin project really as a kind of healing project. Um, as you say, transitions, I had lost a job. Uh, I had uh, some years earlier gone through a divorce and was still reverberating in my life. And um, um, our mother had died some years earlier. So there was a lot of tumult and turmoil in my life. And so I was looking for something that I could take on that would engage the better part of me, something positive to do. And I had always loved the outdoors. It's you know part of what brought me to Maine many years ago, and it's been an important part of my life. So I played with several different ideas about traveling to somewhere or doing something else. And, and um, 
I decided the thing I really wanted to do was build a cabin. And uh, it was a uh, fantasy in a way, really. And, and I'm not really capable of building a cabin by myself. So fortunately, <laughs> I have a brother who is. So uh, I had this uh, idea, this dream, and I loved that part of Maine, Western Maine. So I bought the land. Paul and I went up together and looked at it. And uh, Paul concluded that it was a you know, good place to put a cabin. Uh, and so um, I got a good deal on it, and uh, we, we started uh, building uh, later that year. So it would have been 2008. Um, so that's how it began. And it's interesting to me, Paul, because you didn't start the book uh, in, in the story. You didn't start as having been going through transitions yourself necessarily, but by the end of the book, you were going through your own set of transitions. Correct, correct. So this seemed like kind of an important thing for you both to be doing at this period of time. Yeah, you know, I guess um, I guess life is really just a series of transitions when you look at it. And, um, you know, the cabin was a, a project where the two of us could be together, could work together. We could bring other family members involved, mainly my children, who all lived locally, and they all love working with their hands, etc. So, you know, what do you do when you have transition in your life? You, you know, I think you revert back to family and to those things that are anchors in your life, and you bring them together. And those are your rudder. Yeah, absolutely. And it was a great, I don't know, salve, solace to me to be to be with Paul through this and his sons uh, who would come out and, and, and you know, lend a hand. Um, one of the boys in particular, Kevin, turned out to be hugely important to the project. He worked with me on the frame of the cabin through the winter, you know, absolutely insane that we were building this thing through the winter but that's that's the way it happened and I was too eager to delay despite Paul's advice so we we went ahead we began in the project in in November can you believe that and we were putting up the frame uh, in the winter in the teeth of a main winter it's snowing you know each weekend I'd go back up there with Kevin and and Paul and you know we'd have another six or 12 inches of snow on the deck and we'd have to shovel it off and broom off the beams and so forth and uh, and get to work but actually it was it turned out to be a lot of fun you know winter is a great time to be outdoors the air is crisp and clear the sky was blue and you know we'd build a fire we'd cook some lunch you know hot dogs or whatever uh so even though it was a little nutty uh it turned out to be a lot of fun and it sure was a great uh joy comfort to me to 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 be with paul and kevin and and his other son paulie uh and occasionally andrew a third son uh, a very capable young man would come along so yeah we were having our own we were sort of having our own work party i had i had teased lou during that part of the project because concurrent with us building it he was um also writing a blog for the New York Times <laughs> on the um, on, on the building of the cabin. And I had said to him, this is the first time a schedule 
of a construction project for me has been driven by the need for you to write something <laughs> to get into your weekly blog. So exactly. that is what's kept us on schedule, his need to keep the blog updated for the times. Um, that's right. We had, we had, <laughs> we were dealing with the cabin and we were also dealing with my, uh, my need to file two or three times uh, to the New York Times. And so I described the ascent of the cabin uh, for the New York Times over the course of the year. And that, that turned out to be fun too. And we had pictures of all of us, you know, uh, as part of that, but you're right, that was that was pretty funny. Um, and so, you know, people all over the world, actually, I had forgotten about yeah, that. People right, all right. over the world were uh, experiencing this cabin going up, and it was not without disasters. I mean, we screwed things up, things fell down. You know, at one point, I hadn't sufficiently, I guess, braced the uh, the roof trusses and it's a very windy place we're up on a hill and the roof trusses blew down it was a complete disaster I just wanted to walk away from the whole project when I saw that one spring day spring of 2009 I guess <clears throat> but Paul and Kevin um, you guys I was amazed you guys went you know it was like hey this is great we can solve this problem I was ready to shoot myself and Paul and Kevin went to work and they untangled the rafters and push the walls back together and we found a way to swing these very heavy trusses back up into the into position um so even that worked out but we shared that <laughs> with with the world via the new york times you know the catastrophe of the rafters i would think that this is something that's not that foreign to you paul having something happen that right. during construction that wasn't what you expected and just having to deal with well that. that's what you know construction is is um you know, no matter, and I've been in, you know, I've been involved in very, very simple projects to very complex multi-million dollar projects, and I don't care what team of professionals you have, how much planning you do, um, there is something that's going to go wrong. I mean, that's, that's just the way construction is. Uh, you know, you try to limit those things as much as possible. But, um, but you know, in construction, they don't call them problems. They call them opportunities. <laughs> well, we had a lot of opportunities, that's you for know. sure. And uh, so, you know, you figure it out. But it's, it's, you know, it's good to get out from behind a computer, get out of the office and those things, and, you know, to use your hands and use your brains to, you know, solve something physically and, and, and hopefully physically with using your brain and not your back you know to you know correct the problem so it's fun and it's and it's and it's all a it's teamwork it's a collaborative thing and Lou was mentioning my son Kevin he you know he puts a tremendous amount of thought you know he'll, stay, he'll, he'll look at a problem for five minutes and not say a word and then he'll approach the solution to it so you know there's uh, there's some good interaction that goes on yeah. between. Not right. everybody agrees. Not yeah, everybody agrees sure. on the right. best way to solve a problem. But, you know, you work it out and say, okay, let's do this. And, you know, Kevin has something that, and Paul has the same quality. I completely lack it. And that's this uh, ability to understand space relationships. You know, some people can 
look at a box and kind of turn it in their mind and say, well, what would that look like if it were turned sideways and, and or, or unfold the box in their mind? And it turns out that that is a good quality to have if you're building something because you have to think, well, how would I fit that into that and so forth? I don't have it. And um, so Kevin in particular, he was great. He saved us a lot of time and effort by thinking these things through, sort of turning the box in his mind um, as, you know, as we built things. And you're right, there was, you know, there was disagreement along the way, and we worked it out. You know, when I started the cabin, I had a pretty firm idea of how I wanted the interior space. And I was going to have a writing room you know, which was a ridiculous idea, you know, another fantasy, as if I were going to go up there and sit in a room inside a cabin and write. But anyway, that this was part of the fantasy. And my nephew, Paulie, Paul's son, um, said, Uncle Louie, no way. This, is, this cabin has to be wide open. It has to be open space. It's a family space. We're all going to be together. Nobody gets behind the door to write a book, you know. And... Um, and I said, no, Paulie, I'm not sure. I think I could use a place where I could escape. No, no, he insisted. And he started citing cabins that we had been in in the past. There was a cabin in particular in Arusta County. We used to take the boys to southern Arusta County for three or four days every fall around Thanksgiving for a deer hunting trip. Nobody ever shot a deer, I think. But in any event, we used to stay in this cabin. And, and Paul, you know, he was described, Paulie was describing that cabin. And... So he made the argument, and he was right. So there's no, the, the interior space of the cabin is fully open. It's communal family space. There are bunk beds against the back wall, and you can, if you're sitting in the, the eating area, you can see the bunk beds, and if somebody's playing poker at the table, it's, it's all wide open. So we worked these things through, you know, as a group, as, we, uh, as it went up. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by MacPage, an accounting and management consulting firm that believes the path to success is paved by their ability to build lasting, meaningful relationships with their clients. MacPage, accessible, approachable, and accountable. For more information, go to macpage.com. Today we have with us in the studio Kate McAleer, who is the founder of Bixby & Company, a chocolate-making company that uses organic, wholesome ingredients like real fruits, nuts, and cocoa. Kate's Chocolate Factory is on the water in Rockland, and she sells to national and local stores, including Whole Foods, Belfast Co-op, Rosemont Market, Aurora Provisions, and Lois's Natural Marketplace. Kate, what a great job you have. <laughs> it's very exciting. And, and chocolatey. And chocolatey, which is, I think that's the best thing, is that you get to do things that make people happy. Mm-hmm. There's really not, well, unless something went wrong with a batch, I guess, there's really nothing that you could do that would present people with any sort of problematic conundrum in their life. <laughs> Hopefully not, no. <laughs> Hopefully not. Well, I was interested to have you come in and talk to us today because you um, are in an article written by Sophie Nelson for Maine Magazine um, called Maine Kind of Candy, Bixby and Company Chocolate, and its clever creator, Kate McAleer. Um she just writes this glowing article about you and your journey. So I wanted to, um, I wanted our listeners to be able to experience that as well. You're only 27 years old. 27, yes. Yeah, that's pretty young to be in charge of um, a good-sized company. Um, it's really exciting how uh, 
I started this company when I was 23 turning 24, and um, my mom had always said, you know, you have a unique opportunity in your 20s to work really hard for yourself, try and launch something and build something, and if it doesn't work out, you still have your 30s to rebound, (laughs) and that was a really incredibly, you know, powerful thing that she had told me at a pretty young age and had encouraged me to go sort of this completely non-corporate path and learn everything about starting a company and then everything about chocolate from the ground up, literally from scratch. Um, So it's been an incredible learning experience and growing experience for myself. And that was sort of the point in, in in a way that, you know, it was about taking just a giant leap and risk and work really hard and learn a lot about myself and about business and food and it's been an incredible experience um challenging but exciting and fun and stressful all combined together i i love that idea that you know your 20s are this very there are time where you can experiment and you can and you can take risks and you can work hard and you have the energy to work hard but also it's it's not like anything's lost if you take a risk and it doesn't pan out right and you don't have as many commitments as people further down the road um, one of these business classes i was in one of these men asked a question he was saying you know i'm I'm in my mid-40s. Is it too late for me to become an entrepreneur? And that was a really interesting question to me. Um, You know, I'm not saying that you can't be an entrepreneur at any age, but there's a particular time in my life right now where I'm not really committed to anything but Bixby and Company. (laughs) So I can put 150% of all of my time and energy, and, you know, at 1 a.m. in the morning I can be researching freight companies because – I'm slightly sleep deprived and <laughs> obsessed with finding, you know, uh, economic freight out of Maine, um, which I think is unique to my own characteristic, but also probably my age. You have a connection to Maine that is lifelong. Yes. Although you've lived here for just the past two years. Full time, right? Full time. Uh, as a Mainer <laughs> for the past two years. So tell me about what was that initial connection? Why, why did you start coming here? Sure. So my mom's family has roots in the Spruce Head, Rockland area, and um, my parents had bought a second home in the Rockport area um, before I was really even born. So we started coming here for not just the summer periods, but for Thanksgivings and winters and um, year-round, you know, second home vacation experiences and we'd always loved the foodie scene the beautiful scenery the breakwater is one of our favorite family walks um, with our dog and my parents had retired two years ago when I was starting up this business um, they had said you know we want to move to Maine full-time we think you should come with us and I said you know Okay, that wasn't maybe necessarily what I was thinking, but it's it's an amazing place to live, amazing place to eat food, and then, um, as it turns out, uh, an amazing place to have a business. So uh, the way that the business um, community has embraced me and helped me grow my business here in Maine has been just fantastic. And I think that the opportunities for small businesses and even startup businesses in Maine are huge, um, unlike other places where I think 
you would never have the access to the help resources networking in a way that you do in Maine, and that's something I think unique to Maine. You had the opportunity pretty early on um, to share some of your work, we'll call it, with Cellar Door Winery. Yes. That must have been pretty important. Absolutely. I mean, Cellar Door Winery is an example of a successful business, but also a successful woman-owned business um, and a role model, quite frankly. So to when I moved to Maine, I don't I don't recall specifically, but I believe Cellador Winery reached out to me before I even reached out to them, and they said, you know, can you drop us off samples of your product? And I ran over there and um, did a sampling, and they opened up some wine, and we were already pairing which bars would go with which of their wines. And then they invited me to come and do samplings, which are incredible experiences at the winery in Lincolnville. And so many fascinating people walk through that location in Lincolnville. And some of you know my biggest networking for business opportunities actually occurred at Cellar Door Winery. And um, again, you have to be open to doing these things, but then things come together unexpectedly and in an exciting fashion. You originally um, weren't going to focus on chocolate. You weren't going to focus on really food at all. You You've traveled a lot. Um, you spent time abroad in China and France, um, where there was a candy focus, of course. But originally, you were you graduated from New York University with a degree in East Asian Studies and minors in Art History and French. And then you began graduate work at the New School, studying the history of decorative arts and design. Yep. So there's there's <laughs> a lot of interesting. Yeah. Things. So I like to call myself a a fan of cultural history so be it through objects art or you know history history um and studying abroad and I so in high school I lived abroad um as a high school student in China and in France living with host families being immersed in those cultures and those were incredible experiences that had major impacts on who I am and obviously what I'm now doing for me, I was trying to figure out how to tie together all of these widespread interests. <laughs> what could be, you know, this one thing that would tie it together? I was pursuing, you know, an art history, decorative arts career, and then um, decided to just take a total pivot. And some of my friends called it a quarter-life crisis. But I think it was just, you know, you, you start going down something and you realize, okay, this is really interesting, and I, you know, it's intellectually interesting, but it's not going to be enough to fulfill everything that I'm looking for in terms of a full-time, impassioned career effort. So thinking about how am I going to wake up every day and want to work incredibly hard at something and tie in so many of my interests, um, owning your own company was one medium through which you could do that, but then in the, in the mode of food, which is such an interesting medium through which so many things can be expressed, and then um, chocolate as a lifelong chocolate lover, and then having been exposed to chocolate in France, um, you know, there's the French are... They're, they're very opinionated, and they, they have a lot of opinions that Americans don't know what real chocolate is or they don't know how to even eat properly and all these, you know, stereotypes about Americans. And so I learned a lot about, you know, what it means to eat good food, 
and appreciate good food in France. And then that translated into eventually the launching of Bixby and Company. You've been listening to Love Main Radio, show number 223, best of 2015. Our guests have included Scott Nash, Dan Krug, Paul and Lou Uranik, and Kate McAleer. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love Main Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Main Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Main Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belayo. I hope that you have enjoyed our Best of 2015 show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day and of 2015. May you have a bountiful life and a happy new year. Love Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Maine Magazine, Berlin City Honda, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Mac Page, Mary Libby of Remax by the Bay, and Apothecary by Design. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Kelly Chase. Our assistant producer is Emily Davis. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Bellat. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, visit us at lovemainradio.com. We leave you with a performance by Dave Gutter and Anna Lombard, known as Armies, recorded live at the Maine Magazine Studios at 75 Market Street, followed by Mistakes Were Made by Spencer Albee. Happy New Year.
We both burst into flames Burst into tears Stood in the rain We braved the war But some wars you can't They say misery loves company Maybe we'll be sad but true Cause there ain't nothing wrong With a little pain There's a reason why it's called a flame Reach out and let it burn you, baby Please Reach out and let it burn They say misery loves company Maybe we'll be sad but true Cause there ain't nothing wrong With a little pain There's a reason why it's called a flame Reach out and let it burn Baby Please Reach out and let it burn
Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room. Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bringing the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit theroomsportland.com. Thank you for tuning in to Love Main Radio's 2015 Best Of Show. We hope that you'll tune in again next year.